So, good evening. Very curious how you're all doing out there in Yogi Land. Not easy to, not easy to tell with the masks on. <laughs> we talk about being masked anyway, and then there really is this mask, and here we're peering out into the sea of eyes. <laughs> Very hard to know. We can feel that the energy a little bit, the, the room starting to settle, the retreat starting to settle and quieten a little and slow down a little. And but I'm imagining <clears throat> day one, day two, not the easiest days of practice. And um, I'm imagining some of you are still wondering how different this retreat is compared to your expectations. Right? When you signed up for a retreat, and got in from the wait list or however you got in, and was dreaming about being at Spirit Rock and meditating and blissing out and walking through the hills and serenely and... And here you are with the <laughs> itchy nose and, you know, and <laughs> feeling tired and grumpy and irritable <laughs> and reactive. And not always and not everybody, but, you know, it's kind of a shock. You come here and, you know, full life and busy and active and then suddenly there's, there's nothing happening except your own tedious mind an achy body, and not a lot of else, not a lot of stimulation. You know, pray for lunch, pray for dinner, you know, pray for tofu. Ooh, tofu, exciting. (laughs) Seven ways to cook tofu, beans. We get to explore our flatulent nature, you know. So, and you're probably wondering, what has all this got to do with awakening and radiance? We're talking about natural radiance and you're feeling dull and obscured. (laughs) At least some of the time, right? I once got this, this this article, and it was like an ad, but it was kind of like a magazine someone sent to me and it had this picture of a a person meditating, levitating um, with a headset. And there was this advertising, this system called the five level peak system for ultra transcendence and meditation and finding your place in the universe all in 28 minutes. That was the, that was a sales push, 28 minutes. And you can see we've done a few more than 28 minutes here. And I'm not seeing anybody levitating and transcending like a Zen monk, whatever that looks like. Maybe fortunately. So here's a cartoon that I wonder if some of you have been feeling like there's a person meditating with a little furrowed brow. And they're saying to themselves, come on. I almost had it. Come on, peace of mind. I don't have a freaking day. Is that it? Is that peace of mind? That little moment of, oh, we got quiet, quick, shh, don't cough, be still. Okay, here it comes, awakening. Okay, I've been waiting, insight meditation, it's going to happen. 
And then it disappears. Damn, I did it wrong again. Hopeless, I'm never going to get there. Everybody else is enlightened, but me, you know. Hmm. Hmm. So, retreat's interesting, isn't it? We sort of retreat from life, but we kind of also smack bang into ourselves and into our minds, into our habits, into our reactions, into our stories and dramas and um, you know, practices humbling. Anybody feel humbled by the last two days? <laughs> Trying to simply just be present. It's not, we're not actually asking that difficult things to do. <laughs> and yet it's really hard, really hard to be present. You know, we had the groups today and we heard some reports of how you're doing. And there's a quite, of course, there's a range of experience. But also hearing about the challenges with, with focusing, with feeling tired, or a lot of achiness and pain in the body, dealing with some residue of feelings from grief and loss, and, um, you know, just hard to settle. And... Um, you know, so just like, you know, retreats are like life in a way. It's a mix of joy and sorrow. We have beautiful moments of sublime serenity and peace and connection and intimacy, sensing the heart opening. And then we have a lot of times where we're feeling not that. We're feeling contracted or fearful or anxious or sad or confused. Anybody feel confused about what they're doing <laughs> or what they're doing here? <laughs> yeah. So the invitation is to meet all of that, all of this, all of this and this with awareness, with curiosity. Like I mentioned in the first day, with welcoming. And we use everything in life and in our experience as a vehicle for practice, for awakening. Where else does awakening, insight, and understanding happen but here, in the midst of our own experience? And so this is kind of like the melting pot, the crucible in which we learn to understand about ourselves and the nature of mind and what it means to be at peace in the midst of experience. The Buddha talked about liberation in this very body, in this very moment, not somewhere else. And he also said, if I didn't think it was possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. Peace is available. Happiness is available. Awakening is nature of your own mind, you could say. So I want to talk a little bit today about how we work with some of the challenges, some of the stuff of our life and our inner experience that comes up, how we meet that with awareness. And as we meet that with awareness, what grows is clarity, is understanding, is insight. And we also grow the capacity to find ease or spaciousness in the midst of all of this stuff. And hopefully out of that, what we learn to grow and develop is a sense of wisdom and a wise response to how to relate to experience. And you may be seen in this retreat and in your practice, in your life, 
how so much depends on wise attitude, how you relate to what's happening. We don't often get a lot of choice about what arises externally or even internally. But we do have some capacity to um, influence how we meet and hold and work with and relate to the experience that we meet. There's a line that gets attributed to Viktor Frankl, I think mistakenly, um, where he says, between stimulus, always attributed to saying, this is by Stephen Covey, between stimulus and response there is a space. In that space lies your freedom and power to choose your response. In your response lies your growth and happiness. This is very not dissimilar to how we're orienting here between stimulus and response, between the whole stuff of experience, inwardly and outwardly, there's a space, a space of awareness, a space to meet it. How we meet that determines our well-being or our suffering to a large degree. So uh, one of my first teachers, uh, Vipassana teachers, Christopher Timmis, we shared this story, and I think it's a good example of what I'm pointing to, where he was practicing in Asia in the Thai in the Thai forest monastery, and as the case with uh, monasteries, which are refuges for animals, a lot of animals live there: dogs, cats, goats, chickens, um, and 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 any animal is welcome as a, as a refuge. And so uh, one day uh, he had a lot of commotion in the courtyard, and the dogs were chasing because they were in the jungle. Were chasing a snake. <clears throat> which is also not uncommon. He got bitten by a snake, almost died. And um, so the, 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 the snake's desperately trying to get away from the dogs and runs out to the edge of the courtyard and there's a monk sitting under a tree. And the snake obviously thinks that's a good place to hide. So he's, the snake goes right under the monk's robes. And the monk's sitting there <laughs> in meditation. <laughs> so what would you do if a snake <laughs> ran under your blanket? <laughs> Right? And the monk just sat there, right? trained in meditation, trained in mindfulness, trained in non-reactivity, trained in equanimity, trained knowing that snakes are very poisonous and good to be still. And of course the snake stayed there because the dogs were trying to get at the, the snake and the, the monk just sat there with the barking dogs and the snake under his robes. And eventually this, the dogs got bored and went away, and eventually the snake felt it was safe and went off and slunk off into the forest. That's a wise, non-reactive resp- <laughs> response to life, right? Freedom, happiness, unhappiness, suffering, depends on how we relate to that experience. If he'd reacted, you know, most likely would have gotten bitten. Maybe have died. When I was uh, about to come here, from England, I was uh, with my mother celebrating her 80th birthday in England, and um, it was Sunday, and we we're having our last dinner together. And I was waiting for the 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 um, what is it the uh, notification from the airlines to check in, and uh, and I was like, oh, it's really weird, I haven't got the notification. And then I look at my uh, email and my ticket, and it's like, oh, the flight left three hours ago. <laughs> Oops, and I'm about to teach a retreat. <laughs> Not good timing. And it was just, it was so interesting just to see, um, you know, 
that was like, well, I missed my flight. You know, my family got all quite distressed about it. And it's like, well, there's nothing I can do. The flight's gone. I'll call United and see what they can do. And fortunately, they let me get on a later flight. So, um, <clears throat> so in each moment, we have a choice how to meet what's arising. It's a great uh, poem from a Sufi poet Hafez when he speaks about, he says, in, uh, you have in your life, um, you have all, your, all the ingredients in your life to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. Right? But what do we do? We wake up in the morning, maybe we're feeling tired, and then we start feeling a little bit grumpy, and then we start being irritable with people around us, and then we start judging ourselves for being irritable, and then we kind of think that the whole day is going to be horrible because we're tired. No, no, no. Mixing ingredients. Right? All that's happening is we're a little tired and just slept. And later he says, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a joy. Mix them and mix them. Like right here, we're, we're, we're cultivating ingredients, using ingredients. Awareness, presence, kindness, patience, mindfulness, steadiness. Right? We cultivate those, mix those, and what happens? Over time, we start to feel a sense of joy or well-being or capacity. So, you might be wondering, why is this hard to do? Why is this practice seemingly challenging? Why is it hard to be with ourselves, to be, you know, these seemingly you know, very welcoming conditions, beautiful place, good food, nice people, as far as we can tell? And um, we never know, but, you know, it seems like a nice group of people. What we encounter is the human condition. What's powerful about silent retreats is there's no relatively no distractions. We confront ourselves, our reality, and and some of the truths of the human human condition. And the Buddha very clearly pointed to some of the 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 the. the truths of the human condition. One is that it's unsatisfactory. That there are things that are difficult to bear in our experience. Some of you have very painful bodies. Some of you are struggling with or working with difficult, painful emotions, difficult situations in life. Not easy just to be with that and to feel that. When we come to retreat, it's a, it's, it's, you could think of the retreat as a, as, a, as a vast sense of space. And in that space, the psyche knows often that it's a safe space for things to arise. So things start arising often from deep in our past. Unresolved emotions, grief, losses, all kinds of things. So we come to feel some of the challenges of of our humanness. And we feel the pain that we might be carrying from our lives, from the world. And we also feel and become aware of how the, 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 the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of not having trained our minds. Right? What have we trained our minds to do? To think to worry, to plan, 
to project, to speculate, to judge. We've not, I mean, maybe we've trained our body some, you know, with yoga, qigong, or athletics or something, but rarely have we trained our mind. And the Buddha said, there's nothing that can harm you more than an untrained mind. Nothing that can support you more than a trained mind. And maybe you're seeing that, you know, when you're seeing how wily and distractible and hyperactive and restless your mind is. How unsettling that is to just sit and be with the mind that won't settle, that won't do as it's told. (laughs) The mind has a mind of its own. And it's rarely interested in sitting and walking and paying paying attention. I always think it's interesting that the mind often likes to be anywhere but here. You know, someone was reporting today about wanting to be go home, and they've been they've been away from their home. And you know how often we think we come to we booked a retreat and we spend a lot of time thinking about the retreat. When we get to the retreat, we think about going home. We think about work, or we think about our problems. And the Buddha said, this, this mind, O monks, is radiant but obscured by visiting defilements, di- visiting tendencies, habits of mind. The untaught person does not understand this, and so there is no development of mind for them. So what we're doing here is we're giving ourselves the profound gift of developing our mind, developing our heart, which will serve you for the rest of your life. Whether you do another retreat or not, you can take away the principles of the practice of mindfulness, awareness, kindness, and this will serve you in your life profoundly. And at the same time, this awareness, this clarity that we're developing through mindfulness also reveals that which is interfering with that what the Buddha spoke of, the natural radiance and the peace of the heart. We, we get to see more intimately why we're not settled, why we're ill at ease. What, what he referred to as the hindrances or the obstacles or the challenges or the habits of mind and heart. And all of this can be difficult and, and, and sort of Mm, troublesome to be swimming in, in, in the stew of all that, it also is providing a lot of clarity and illumination so we can actually understand why is it that we're not abiding in peace and well-being? What is interfering with that? This is from a um, Archbishop Francois Fenelon writing in, I think it was the 17th century, referring to Uh, awareness as light. He says, as light increases, we see ourselves worse than we thought. Anybody had that experience? (laughs) We see ourselves worse than we thought. We're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. Medieval, you know, you know, stuff. Anyhow, a little bit extreme. But we could never believe that we had harbored such things that we stand aghast as we watch them appear. We, we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. While our faults diminish, the light by which we see them grows brighter. Bear in mind for your comfort, we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. We only perceive the malady when the cure begins. The cure 
is the light of awareness. Right? When we see our reactivity, when we see our judging mind, when we see our self-hatred, when we feel the pain of collapsing into deficiency or unworthiness, as painful as all that seeing is, we can actually uh, come to understand it, come to know it, come to feel it, come to be able to find some skillful way to work with it. So our task is to actually welcome these habits and tendencies of mind, not to get lost in them, but to be aware of them, to understand them, to know when they're present, and to know when they're absent. We also want to see when our mind is free from turmoil, free from reactivity, free from grasping and fear and aversion, of which there are many, many moments where we're actually resting at ease with ourselves or with the experience or with life. They're actually intimations of freedom. And we want to understand the causes or how these things arise. How does you know, reactivity arise? How does aversion take hold of us? How does fear or grasping or longing, how does that move in us? What, what are the causes, what are the beliefs that drive that? It's a beautiful line from uh, teacher poet Jennifer Werwood. She says, talking about conditions, these obstacles, she says, each condition, each thing I welcome, each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. Each condition I flee from, my fear, my hatred, my judgment, reactivity, my deficiency, whatever, that I flee from, of course it follows us around. You know, we try to we go to Hawaii or we go somewhere, we go to retreat and it follows us, comes along in our suitcase. If we turn towards it, we may have a chance of understanding it. And with understanding, releasing, relinquishing, which is qualities of freedom. So what are the habits and challenges or obstacles or tendencies or hindrances that afflict you? Maybe just feel free to shout out in one word. Like what, 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 what's gripping you? What's, what, what do you f- feel like is an obstacle to your practice, to your meditation? Just shout out if you feel comfortable. Drowsiness, right? Sleepiness, I'll speak to that. Thinking, yes. I think I'll speak to that, yes. Pardon? Making, list making, and I heard doubt back there. Forgetting why I'm here, right? Being confused why I'm here, yeah. Planning, right? Thinking mind. Arguing, yeah. And I'm sure many more. Yeah. So I think one of the, the, the probably the most obvious sort of challenge that we that we encounter is is our thinking mind, as you were referring to, right? Just the plethora, the flood, the relentlessness of our thinking mind. Yeah. There's a lot. There's some 
varying debate about how many thoughts we think a day in the in the in the scientific literature, but anywhere from fifteen thousand to sixty five thousand is is sort of the range that I've more recently come across, which is about one a second, one thought a second. So if we have this notion, which we often do, that somehow thinking should stop during meditation, <laughs> right? That's forty five minutes. That's I don't know couple of thousand seconds, right? a couple of thousand thought possibilities. Right? No wonder we have a lot of thoughts in our meditation, because right? we have a lot of thoughts in our day, because that's what we do, we, it's what we preference, that's what we cultivate. You know, that phrase from the Buddha, whatever we incline the mind towards that, the mind becomes. If we incline our mind towards thinking, we think a lot. Guess what? We mostly incline our mind to thinking a lot. So what happens in meditation? We're afflicted by our thoughts. We get lost in thought. And then very quickly we make thought the problem or the enemy. And we feel you know, at, at odds with our thinking mind. Sometimes we like our thoughts. That's partly why we think, because they're often pleasant. We're fantasizing about our next retreat or how great it would be to be enlightened or our next vacation or what we're going to do after lunch. Or, so we, you know, the, the, the breath feels boring, so we have a little fantasy. We have a little sexual fantasy. Or we fantasize about who knows what. When I'm on retreat, I do a lot of wilderness retreats. I spend a lot of time building my wilderness cabin. <laughs> That's my little fixation. <laughs> And I and I it, I get it's compulsive because I enjoy it and I don't have a wilderness cavern I'd like one, <laughs> but it's kind of a waste of time because that doesn't actually do anything except distract me from being present. And at some point in my practice, I realized thinking and being lost in thought is a substandard form of happiness, and it provides some kind of entertainment and stimulation. But compared to the peace and the well-being and the joy that comes from a mind that's either free from thought or has some greater capacity to decide when to think and when not to think, that is far more satisfying and nourishing. Right? And over time, as, as you know, I've noticed in my own practice, you know, the thoughts just become less interesting partly because I've seen them and thought them so many times and watched them in meditation so many times. So it's easier to let go. And so with awareness, as we cultivate this mindful awareness, it grows this quality of luminosity and we see thoughts as they are, fleeting, ephemeral, insubstantial wisps that are like clouds in the sky. And so as, we, as, as, as you'll see, as, as awareness grows on the retreat, we can see thoughts coming and going, not be so pulled into them, become less interested, see their transience. So there's the thinking, there's a lot more to say about thinking, we'll talk more about that um, through the retreat. So I want to give a little time to the, the five main tendencies that the Buddha spoke to, because they are, and I think he spoke to them, because they come up a lot in our experience. And somebody mentioned in, in two different ways, 
the, the first one that I want to speak to, which is doubt. Right? And I think doubt comes up a lot in the beginning of retreat because we often have the thought, what the hell am I doing here? WTF, this is really hard and boring. Why did I come? I could have gone on vacation. I could be in Hawaii now and I'm here looking at my breath and trying to feel it. You know, if someone once said, I'd rather be at work. <laughs> I thought that was very telling. <laughs> and on the same retreat, someone said, I'd rather be, I could be sipping Chardonnay in Napa Valley and I came here to a rainy retreat. Or the doubt manifests as I'm the only one who's confused. I'm the only one who's not getting it. I'm the only one who's struggling. I'm the only one who's exhausted. Everybody's just on the tip of awakening and I'm like, just can't even find my body. Or we doubt the teachers. We doubt in our, our own capacity, our own goodness, our own wisdom, our own cloudy. And then we doubt what's around it. We doubt the teachers. What do they know? I don't know. They sort of like, I see them walk around. I don't know if they're very mindful. Um, <clears throat> I've heard those other teachers in those other traditions, those Tibetan traditions, and they're way more wiser, you know. And, It's like it's a cartoon of a, this row of Zen monks sitting in the Zendo all looking very strict and there's one person on a cell phone saying, I don't think this is doing me any good at all. <laughs> we doubt the practice. You know, maybe this mindful stuff is sort of, you know, it's like it's all the rage now. It's, you know, it's all hype. I don't, I'm not sure I believe the science. And Maybe I should do my yoga practice, or why we should do qigong all day. Maybe that's the way, you know. And but I think the the more, more insidious and painful manifestation of doubt is when we doubt ourselves through the voice of the inner critic. Anybody notice a few critical thoughts, a few judgmental thoughts about your practice, about your mindfulness, about your compassion, about your ability to to awaken. Right? Or the way that we kind of, the, the way the critic slams your concentration or your inability to focus or whatever it is. Right? Very, very painful. You know, they came to the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment. He's sitting in, in, under the Bodhi tree about to, uh, you know, attain awakening. And the Mara, the voice of, um, you could say, delusion, arises and says to him in his own voice, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to sit on this lotus throne of enlightenment? By what right do you have to sit here and, and claim authority, as it were, to awaken? That sound voice sound familiar? Who do you think you are to meditate, being also special on a retreat? And the Buddha, wise, didn't get into an argument with Mark because you can't win with the inner critic, as you might have noticed. It always has the last say. He put his hand to the earth, like in this mudra, the Bhumaspasha mudra, and said, the earth is my witness. The earth is my witness. This is the right I have to take this place as a human being 
my birthright to awaken. It's the nature of the mind to awaken. And so when Mara would appear throughout his life, post-awakening, it's not like the critic goes away just because you have an illumination. He would say, Mara, I see you. So when the critical voice comes up and says, I don't think your meditation's really any good. I don't know why you bother. You didn't do yoga very well. Now do you think you can do this mindfulness stuff? I don't know. You just say, Mara, I see you. Or what I like to say to my critic is, thank you for your opinion. Thank you for your point of view, which it just is. It's a point of view that's not based in reality, actually, or not based in kindness either. Bless you. So with a doubting mind, it's important to let go of evaluating your practice. As, as, as Howie was speaking to uh, Anagarika Manindra, one of the things he used to say is when people were doubting was, your job is just to sit and walk. Put your butt on the cushion, sit and walk. Let the Dharma take care of the rest. Don't get busy with evaluating, is this working, am I doing it? Just, just do the practice. Sit, walk, sit, walk. And it will unfold over time. Important to recognize that the doubting mind is just a thought. It's just a state of mind. Has no reality except to the one we give it like so many of our thoughts. And the nature of doubt pulls us away from the practice, so the way to counteract that is to engage, to notice the thoughts, notice the doubts, and then go, okay, I'm going to immerse back into the practice, sitting, breathing, walking, whatever it is you're doing at the time. When we don't do that, we get caught up in restless, and when we get caught up in doubt, it, I think it triggers two of the other hindrances, obstacles. One is restlessness. When we start doubting ourselves, doubting the practice, doubting the teachers, doubting the form, doubting why we're here, it creates agitation. And there are many other reasons why we feel agitated. Anybody feel like running out of the room at times, waiting for that bell to ring? Right. We often have too much energy, too much mental energy, or we're spinning either in regret about something that we've done that was painful or hurtful, or we're spinning out in the future with worry and anticipation and anxiety, and it creates a lot of physical agitation, mental restlessness. Or we're just bored. We're like waiting for something to happen. <laughs> and you might notice not a lot happens. <laughs> so we get impatient. We get impatient for insight. This is insight meditation. How come I don't have an insight yet? I teach sometimes with Sharon Salzberg, and she always likes to tell the story of when IMS, Insight Meditation Society, first started Sister Center to Spirit Rock in Massachusetts. One of They used to get different ma- mail, often addressed to slightly uh, erroneous um, versions of Insight Meditation Society, and one of them was called Addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> I think we would all like that version, the Instant Meditation Society. But it's not instant. It's quite slow. Okay, this is a, for me. It's in thirty-five years of practice. It's slow, it's incremental. You know, at times there's sort of illuminations and and and, and deepenings and, and relinquishments, but often it's just a slow, steady plotting. 
And so, um, you know, and in our life, we're so stimulated and we're so used to instant results and, you know, getting loading pages and whatnot of nano speed that it's hard to actually slow down. Hard to be just with without stimulation. I just read a data point today that 80% of people read the f- their phone in the toilet. Like there's not a moment that we don't actually pause. Right? And that this whole retreat is one long pause, which is why we sometimes don't know, don't know what to do with that, that energy. And it's why I like to emphasize spaciousness. Right? When you're feeling restless, it feels like a sense of containment, bound, too much energy in the system. One of the things that's helpful is to actually open your eyes. Right? This is a beautiful room to invite spaciousness. And you open see the space in the room, like I was pointing to today, earlier. Um, that can it can immediately sort of diffuses that intensity. So so you might just try opening the eyes, or just feeling the relaxed quality of the out breath, or feeling a sense of groundedness, or walking outside and feeling the sense of earthed. And I saw the Qigong, you know, some of the movements of Qigong, very, very uh, grounding, calming to the restless body. And of course, its converse is, is the sloth that someone was speaking to, tiredness, right, comes up a lot, particularly day one, day two, the energy starts to pick up, usually in day three. You'll be happy to hear. Um, so it's, the, you know, and we often just arrive, we're a sleep-deprived culture, we undersleep, we override our bodies, we push, and so naturally our bodies are exhausted. And it's actually really important to rest, as I mentioned, take naps, rest during after the meal, rest your body. Enjoy the sense of ease. It's a beautiful gift to give to yourself. My favorite pro- Spanish proverb when I lived in Spain was, um, it is beautiful to do nothing and then rest afterwards. <laughs> beautiful to do nothing and rest afterwards. That's what we're doing, a whole lot of nothing and then rest. And then some more nothing and then rest. Mm-hmm. So tiredness isn't a problem. Sleepiness isn't a problem. We can still practice when we're sleepy, foggy, maybe a little dull, but it's just another state of mind. I used to hate being sleepy. I got sleepy a lot in my early years, even though I was a young man. Uh, probably partly resistance. That's another reason we get sleepy, is we're resistant to feeling something and being with ourselves. And so I'd fight against the, res- with the sleepiness and, and, and create a lot of suffering, a lot of unnecessary suffering. And again, going back to what I was saying earlier about what's key is how we relate to these things. Sleepiness, dullness, tiredness is not a problem. It's not suffering unless we are in contention with it. And the Buddha's teaching is about non-contentiousness with reality. And the third noble truth. But if we're fighting our tiredness, if we're thinking it shouldn't be happening, if we think it's wrong, if we're attached to clarity, then we'll suffer around the tiredness. So whether it's tiredness or restlessness or your doubting mind, you see how we relate to those things determines whether we suffer in relationship to them. So next time you're tired, which might be like, now, <laughs> or in 10 minutes, 
Notice if you're thinking that should be different. Noticing if you're thinking it's a problem. Noticing if you want to get rid of it. Because then you're in the next mind state, which is aversion, or resistance, or hatred, or judgment. And then we expand the field and go, okay, well, I've moved from judgment, from sleepiness, to judgment, to hatred. Okay, now I'm in the, another of the, the obstacles, hindrances, aversion. Oh, now let me bring awareness to aversion. Oh, I shouldn't be aversion, that's really bad, I'm bad yogi. And then we start judging ourselves for being aversive. Okay, look at judging, now we're judging ourselves. Where we can actually just simply open to the aversion. Our oh, aversion feels tight, it feels contracted, it feels cold, or whatever it feels like. So, so meeting whatever's here with awareness, with clarity, Sleepiness is like this. Restlessness feels like this. And of course, we can feel the unpleasant quality of it, which is what we're reacting to. And I'll speak a little about that tomorrow, the, the second foundation of mindfulness, the, the, the uh, effective quality of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. When it's unpleasant, we, what do we do? We react, we push away, we reject, because we don't like the unpleasant, because we like pleasure. Which brings me to the fourth main primary, you could say, force in our mind stream, which is the wanting mind, the desirous mind, the mind that longs, the heart that craves, that wants experience, wants pleasure, wants often what's not here, wants it to be better and improved. Looking for, looking for satisfaction in something, someone, some experience, usually in time, usually in the future. So it's forward-leaning. Kind of, we lean out of ourselves. We lean out of the moment. Very natural, very human experience, but also causes a lot of suffering. We postpone our well-being and happiness here in pursuit of something outside of ourselves that we believe will give us the lasting happiness that our heart longs for. And of course, we're naturally inclined in that way biologically to orient to pleasure. And, and our culture conditions that in every possible way and moment. So I'm going to share one of my favorite um, ads uh, that um, this has a, it's an ad that Harry and I like to share. <clears throat> it's an old Ford ad, <clears throat> and there's a young guy meditating like this. I don't know why the media thinks people meditate like this, <laughs> unless you want to build your biceps or something. It's you know it's just hard to do that for longer than a couple of minutes. Anyway, he's meditating like that in front of all of his stuff. And if you can see, you probably can't see it. He's got his scuba equipment and his kayak and golf clubs and guitar and skis and dog and bike and car and everything you, a young guy might want. And the, 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 the ad reads, Spence, it's his name, put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. <laughs> That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger. 
So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. So we're clearly barking up the wrong tree here. So we should rush off down to the local Ford dealership and get a compact four. Now you can get electric E150. You know, then then you'll be really, you know, both green and happy. You know. So you know, it's funny, but it's that that's what we've grown up in that that conditioning, that cultural bias to, you know believe and promulgate this belief that happiness is in experience, in things, in stuff, in accumulation, consumption. And so when we're sitting just with our, you know, rather mundane breath and our, you know, very sort of, you know, simple experience of body and life, no wonder we start fantasizing. You know, one of my early retreats, I was in uh, Wales, which is um, very rainy and beautiful. Um, and uh, I was new to retreat, and I was really struggling. And I was bored, and um, and was like really remote, like way up in a mountain. But there was a village three miles away, and um, and I th- and my my roommate was sick, and I thought, great. I'll go get him some cold medicine and I'm going to load up on chocolate and that's going to make my retreat better. It's going to make me happy. So it was powling, like really howling storm. And I was like, screw it, I'm going to go because, you know, he's sick. You know, I'm noble here. <laughs> get to, the, you know, hike three miles down, you know, sneak out of the meditation, get to the shop, little, little village shop, and load up on chocolates and candy and stuff and get all the way another three miles back. It was a ridiculous like half day expedition. Walk into my room as I oh shit, I forgot the cold medicine. <laughs> because desire gives you tunnel vision, right? Okay, this is what I want, I'm gonna get it, and nothing else matters, right? That's why a lot of harm is caused by desire because we exclude everything else, including reason and ethics and all kinds of things. So, a slightly extreme example, but I've had other friends who've walked similar distances <laughs> to go get some donuts, to go get a can of Coke, to go get a pizza. Uh, it's a long walk to the store, just so you know. And what you know, and then of course, when I get the chocolate, it's like, well, it's just chocolate. I mean, it's good, but, you know, it was Cadbury's back then in England, you know, in the 80s, it wasn't that great. Um, so, but we want to pay attention to this force, this movement in the mind, in the body, in the heart. Right? And you've probably seen waves of desire, of wanting, of longing. Right? Desires are endless, not a problem in themselves until we actually grasp at them demand that reality happens in that way. That we get the object of our desire and we get caught in that grip. And we all know that experience where our belly grips, our throat tightens, our heart, our tunnel vision. And in that, that moment of desire is actually very painful. 
Right? Think about the last time you were longing for something. Longing for someone, longing for some experience, longing for this retreat or this moment to be different. It's actually quite painful. We're quite separated from ourselves, quite ill at ease. And so we want to bring both compassionate attention to that and just hold it in awareness. Next time you're caught in a particular longing, fantasy, desire, wanting, reaching, it's just energy. It's just a movement of life force. Again, we can bring awareness, hold it in awareness, just the next thing to attend to. Oh, desire feels like this. Attachment feels like this. Grasping feels like that. Longing feels like this, or however it feels for you. And in that moment, with awareness, when, when we're holding that in awareness, the strength of desire has no legs. It will eventually dissolve in, back into emptiness. So, again, plenty of opportunity to feel that. Desire feels like this. Longing feels like this. See its transient nature. We see the desires. In in, in single meditation, there'll be many expressions of the wanting mind. Comes and goes. See its ephemerality. And when it it releases, we, we, we release into peace. We release into well-being. We actually release into freedom. Way more satisfying than that, that particular thing could be. And then lastly, the converse of that, the, the movement of aversion. Either uh, against the object through anger, hatred, rejection, violence, aggression, or moving away, recoiling with fear, with uh, um, bypassing, with shutting down, with avoidance, with rejection. And perhaps this is the maybe the more common experience we feel on the retreat, because there's many things that are unpleasant, like physical pain, like tiredness, like the craving mind, like feeling cold or wet or grumpy or whatever it is. So how much time do you spend in aversion, resisting or reacting to how your experience is? Probably quite a lot. It's part of being human. Life is full of experience that manifests in three ways, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. When it's unpleasant, if we're not mindful, we habitually react with aversion, with resistance, with rejection, with hatred. And it's a very and it's it, it grabs our attention more because it's painful, it's unpleasant, it's difficult, it's unwanted. And again, we can also bring awareness to this, hold it in awareness, hold it with kind attention, particularly when it's painful, and see it's just another passing appearance of one of many, many millions of passing appearances. And when we hold held in awareness, it loses its grip, it loses its grab on us. So I'll share a story about that. I was in India practicing as, as in Bodhgaya, 
place where the Buddha was said to awaken. And um, I was, uh, was in these, I used to do these 20-day retreats with Christopher Titmus, and there was in the Thai temple, beautiful uh, Thai temple complex just outside of the village. And um, I was there during pilgrim season in January, so there's thousands and thousands of Buddhist pilgrims from all over the world. It's a very beautiful, multinational uh, happening. And um, so the, the, the Thai temple was basically in the rice paddies, but the town had grown up during the, the, the pilgrim season. Markets grew all around the, the, the temple, so it was quite noisy. And the, the room, this room, the, the Dharma Hall was all concrete. And this travel agency set up shop outside the monastery gates. And uh, they put the loudspeaker on top of the sort of, you know, makeshift you know, building. And they'd play this uh, recording on a cassette. This is dating myself, a cassette player. And you could hear the cassette. And it would go, hello, 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 hello. And you're like, oh, hello, someone's. And then some words in Hindi that I didn't mostly understand. And then I'd hear some names of cities, Bombay, Calcutta, Darjeeling, Delhi, Madras. And then a few more words in Hindi. And then, hello. And then it stopped. And then, hello, 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 hello. And I'd go round and round. And this was like day two of a 20-day retreat. And it's loud, like really loud, like, hello, hello, hello. Shoot me now. Hatred, aversion. I thought I was coming to India to be quiet and on retreat. I can't admit it. I can't hear my own mind. You know, a lot of reactivity. I was new to practice and I was just you know, running up the walls. And... Um, and then, of course, it went on. And then it, it, the only great relief was when the the, uh, the power grid would shut down, which it would lock because it was in Bihar, which is the poorest state. And we'd have this blessed relief. And then the power would come back on. Hello, 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 hello. And it was, it was torturous because I was in reaction, thinking it shouldn't be happening, thinking it was wrong, thinking it was interfering with my retreat, blah, 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 story, story, story. And so I was really contracted every time I heard it. But I, because it went on day after day after day, I had to find another way. And at some point, it just became sound. It just became noise. And just like all the other noise I was hearing, it just kind of went through. And what was powerful about that teaching and why I share it and why I remember it is because with the, the teaching was the, the, the object that I was hating didn't need to go away for the hatred and peace, for the hatred to dissolve and peace to be present. That I could find peace in the midst of the experience by changing my relationship to the experience. Right? And that can be equally applied to the you know, chronic pain in your knee, which I have right now, or your backache, or whatever it is that you're gripped with in aversion to, struggling with, what is that relationship? Can you find wisdom in relationship to it? Can you hold it in awareness? See, that too is also ephemeral, conditioned. 
and seeing the suffering of that contracted mind state. So, <clears throat> so this is, these are some of the terrains that we inhabit in our practice. Right? The thinking mind, the doubting mind, the restless mind, the sleepy mind, the wanting mind, the aversive mind. All part of human experience, all part of practice that we can learn to meet with awareness, with clarity, with understanding, and in doing so find freedom and peace and wisdom and a wise responsiveness in the midst of that stuff. That's the possibility of the practice, to find peace right here. So let's just take a moment to sit. And just noticing where you are and what's here. And whatever's here, I'm just simply naming, oh, this moment is like this. Noticing if it can be met with awareness, with simple knowing. And in that knowing, be released from its grip. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.